no, you can't throw that. That's not counter. Welcome to Clocker Counter. I'm Ryan Young, and with me is James Wiseman. So before we get started, James, I watched you play a Dota game before we met up, and I think I need to give a one-line review or a one... <laughs> Hit me. So, you know that scene from Back to the Future where Marty McFly tricks Biff into crashing into the back of the truck and the manure falls onto Biff? Yes. I think you were the manure in that scene. <laughs> I'm not even Biff. I'm the manure. <laughs> yeah. I'm literal cow poop. That's what I was. That's fair. So to give background, Dota 2 is a game that Ryan and I both love. I actually started playing it when I was in middle school, so over 20 years ago. I didn't think about this game for 12 years, and then Ryan told me that if I had been a less responsible child, I would be competing for $50 million right now to win the Dota 2 World Championship. But I dabble now as in a novice player. Today was the first day I got my numerical ranking. My current MMR for any Dota players, feel free to laugh at me, is 870, which is pretty much, it's, as, it's worse than if you opened up the game the first time and they gave you the base score. That's how bad my Dota score is. Now, in fairness, I had no idea that Ryan was watching my game, but I guess when you play Dota, someone else can just peep in your game and see how you're doing. But yes, I am very bad at Dota. I was trying to play a support Venomancer. I was trying to do my job, getting my wards out. But as Ryan said, I was just a truck full of cow poop. So on the flip side, we'll talk, we'll have like a whole episode on growth mindset, but like the starting place, like doesn't matter. Like that's it's just going to be a better, I was talking to James about this. It's like the true sight episode is going to be epic. Be like starting out sub one K all the way to the international grand <laughs> finals. Sub one K. It sounds so bad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it is exciting to be learning something from scratch again, where hopefully you get those big gains where you see the major improvement. It's also nice. Unlike freestyle to do something where they measure how good you are and they can tell you with a number, how good you are. And you can watch it go up and hopefully not down too often. So it'll be fun to have that objective measure. Unlike in freestyle where sometimes it just, you have no idea. Am I getting better? Am I getting worse? I don't know. But The new ranking system. The new ranking <laughs> system has an MMR. That's true, but that's always going to be based on competition. And as I'm sure we'll talk about, there's a lot about <laughs> freestyle that is totally different from competition. So, you know, in fact, that's part of what we're going to be talking about today like what is worth learning if it's not valuable in competition, but okay, why don't you give us our, our official introduction into our today's topic. Okay. So today we're doing our first debate. So part of the podcast is Ryan and I don't agree on everything. There's a lot of things we disagree about. And one of the things we strongly disagree about is the value of learning both spins clock or counter the name of this podcast. And kind of a related aspect of that is the value of being a both spins any angle player. So being able to do not only clock or counter, but be able to do any angle of clock or counter, vertical, flat, upside down, whatever the case may be. It's something that I think a lot of freestylers prize, but others, including Ryan, don't think it's very important. And today we're gonna talk about our different viewpoints. Okay, tell me if this is true, but I feel like BSAA, I've only heard that come out of the New York crew. Is that a global term? That's a good point. I don't remember where I first heard BSAA. I feel like maybe it's something I heard from Graph at some point, but I do think wherever it came from now, most freestylers seem to know what BSAA means. Okay. All right. So you're the one who has, I think, the idiosyncratic view here. So why don't you start me out with your elevator pitch for why you should just learn one spin? And to be clear, is it you should just learn one spin or you should just learn clock? Oh, I was going to make that a sub point, but okay. yeah, you're, you're <laughs> so I was going to break it into two points. So, so there's like jamming and then there's competition, mm -hmm. but for both of them, <laughs> I think both spins, any angle is overrated in all, in all conditions. Okay. And I guess you can make this sub point when you want, but do you need to learn just clock? Or, do, or can you learn either spin? 
I think you should, everyone should start with clock. And my reasoning is more people in the world are right-handed and it's easier to throw a clock with your right hand and all your brushing is going to be right-handed. And just because of that asymmetry and like the human genetics, like we should, instead of like fighting against it, we should go, we should like take advantage of that for a freestyle. It's already so hard. Okay. So that's one point, but give me, if you can, give me your layout of what are your main arguments you want to make okay. about why you shouldn't learn BSAA or why it's overrated. Okay. So high level, the first point is you can't tell when it's clock or counter when you're watching, like the only person that really matters for is like the person with the disc and anyone who is watching the competition, either judges or the audience, they just have a hard time. Next, it's hard to mix the two spins. So like if you only learn, I mean, one thing people don't know is it's twice as hard to learn clock and counter. It's not like, I don't know, it's like learning to write with your left hand. No, like no one writes with both of their hands. So it takes twice as much time to learn both spins. And if you're playing with both spins, you have to like spend twice as much time learning. Yeah. And then the last point is, we have this saying in like the bike community where the best bike is the one you'll ride. It's like used to justify buying like a $15,000 bike. Cause like mm -hmm. you're probably not a pro bike rider and you don't need all the gains from like a $15,000 bike. But if you buy, if someone buys a $15 bike, they're gonna ride it all the time. And when you're learning new moves, it's like, do you wanna learn a move you can already do clock? counter or do you want to learn this new move that you have never learned before is it this is a bad analogy spin. but is it almost like the same reason why i think this is wrong in real life too but is it the same reason why people say like you should buy a nice mattress because you spend most of your time asleep versus other things so it's like you spend most of your time doing clock so you should be extra good at clock is it something like that no it's more like uh it's or it's like, like, is clock the bike in the situation? So it's like, yeah, clock you, is the bike. So I was like, thinking of the mattress analogy. It's like, you should buy. No, it's like, well, it's let's more say like, okay, you have two bikes in the garage. One bike is mm -hmm. clock and one bike is counter. And you have $5,000 to spend to upgrade your bike. Should you spend it upgrading both of them for $2,000 or the one that's worse? Or should you keep doubling down on your best bike? And you're saying, keep spending the money on your best bike. Cause that's the bike you're going to use. Am I no, getting it's closer? More like <laughs> I'm not whatever you should spend yet. your money <laughs> in the way that makes you ride the bike the most. So like that can be any configuration, but most of the time it's used to justify buying a really expensive bike. Got it. And in okay. our case, I think the more expensive bike is learning the more advanced move. Okay, I only vaguely understand your bike analogy, but let me summarize what I think your main points are. So your first point is that nobody can tell. And I, I mean, I'll do all your points and then I'll ask some questions about them. Your first point is that no one can tell a clock or counter. Your second point, which you made earlier, is everyone's right-handed and the most natural right-handed throw at the backhand is gonna be clock. Your third point, which I have a lot of agreement with, is it takes twice as much time to learn the other spin. There's no synergy from learning one when you're learning the next one. And then this weird bike analogy that we're just not the work through. So on the first point, no one can tell. Do you mean that, like, I definitely agree that the audience member or the lay person watching, they are never going to think about, is it clock or is it counter or is it a difference? I'd also guess related to your second point or third point, most people, until they try it, assume you just learn how to spin it on your finger and then you're good. It doesn't matter what spin it is or what hand it is. It's just like, oh, you learned how to do that. So I agree that most people can't really tell the difference between clock and counter. But does it matter that freestylers can tell the difference if it's clock or counter and it might matter to freestylers? If it mattered to freestylers, I think they would complain about it more. Like it's always around the, the table, like at the party, we talk about clock versus counter. And then like, I never hear about it again, but it's, I don't see any like outrage on the Facebook group about. What would the outrage be like, <laughs> oh, these players aren't learning both spins. 
they just know one? It would be like uh, someone posts a routine video and then it'd be like, oh, it was all, all clock, which I do see very rarely, but it's like, that's the outlier comment on the post. I get that. So I think of it almost as like a tiebreaker. And I think that's the way it comes up. So for instance, a lot of times people will be like, wow, like Tom Leitner, one of the best players in the world, but not much of a counter player or like Dave Murphy, same thing. And so I do hear it in that context. Like if there's not much else you can say, because they're already so good at everything else, you'll kind of be like, well, like they could probably stand to be better at both spins. But there's a flip side of that too. It is, I do think people get extra appreciation when they are truly both spins. I think it's one of the first things that comes up in routine commentary. They'll be like, oh, this player is really good at both spins. So we'll see both of them. And then I think like, if you look at the debate between Joey Hadoklin and Donnie Rhodes, a lot of people cite Joey's BSAA attitude as one reason why they might pick him over Donnie, which I don't have a lot of strong views about because I don't know Donnie's game particularly well. But those are the contexts that I feel like it comes up. Do you agree with that? Yep. But I guess your point is that that's like the fourth thing that comes up in the conversation and it's kind of like a side conversation. It's not really a determining factor. Yeah, like whenever you get introduced, you're one of the players that gets introduced as having that attribute of playing both spins pretty equally at a high level. But it's it's mentioned like it has to be mentioned for people to notice that's that's part of the problem well there's also kind of a weird thing that i feel like happens in different aspects of being a top level player which is that the better you are at counter the less people notice you know what i mean <laughs> yeah. so it's like you almost want to be a little bit bad at it and a little bit sloppy so that people are like oh i get that you were doing your non-dominant spin it's like it's I like, like crash and burn guidance like what do you mean? my guidance oh, is better <laughs> because it's worse yes that's a great point so like I've been thinking about this a lot lately because I'm doing the most extreme version of BSAA, which is learning all of my doubles on the other side, which is truly a nightmare because I'm sending it with my non-dominant spin to my non-dominant side, spinning with my non-dominant body spin and catching it with the opposite hand that I normally catch it with. So like everything's the opposite. And at first I feel like it was kind of working for me because people were like, whoa, like you went for it the other way, but I'm starting to get good enough at some of them that now people don't notice like including at worlds this year i caught two double chairs each way and i lost points on the second one because people were like oh he already did that even though i literally did the exact opposite of it and not the same thing so that's probably a point in your favor that like the better you get at this the less it's appreciated so it's like almost better to be a little bit worse at it and like worse is an interesting word because sometimes we choose to be like a little sloppier to make that point. Like the crash and burn is the best example. Like sometimes you want to crash and burn for the theatrics of it, even though you don't have to. So that's fair. Like, I think I might give you that point. Like, I think it's totally valid that people can't really tell. So let me go on to your next point. Everyone is right-handed. So it's helpful to just learn right-handed. And I'll actually add an argument for you. I'm very generous today, Ryan. Not only is mo are most people right-handed, there is a lot of value in having the common language. So if everyone were primarily clock, our jam communication would just be higher. So it's like, you know, when you go to Worlds, you can walk into any jam and you're going to be totally comfortable because most people are going to be clock. And I've been thinking about this a lot because I have two left-handed Duke players this year. And I told them, you're going to learn how to play clock and we'll do counter later. So they are learning to throw with their right hand, their non-dominant hand, and it's obviously way harder for them to do that. But the reason is I've got, you know, a nine-person jam of all new players who have played between two months and three years. And I can't afford to have two of them play counter and have no idea what to do when they get the disc and no way of throwing it to the other players. So on that score, you absolutely win. I am teaching all of my players clock, whether I want to or not. But eventually, if they stick with it and they stay in Durham and I have enough years, I promise I will teach them counter. I My counter game is definitely deteriorating because I'm not getting any counter here. But, you know, we'll get into some more details about that later. Okay, so I agree with you on that. I'm going to agree with you on a lot, but then I'm going to draw a different conclusion. 
I want to go even further than you on that takes twice as long to learn. So I think the point you're trying to make is that if you learn clock, let's say it takes you 12 hours to learn how to delay a clock. You might think, okay, well, learning counter will take me six hours because I already learned clock. The answer is no. It will take you at least 12 hours to learn counter on your other hand. But here's what I want to go further. I think it's going to take you 20 or 30 or 40 hours to learn counter. I think it takes longer to learn the second spin than it does the first spin. I could be wrong about that. I don't have like empirical data here or anything, but I will say that like, I mean, I, I think here's my empirical data. When people come up to me at Duke, I can teach them how to do a five second delay in 20 minutes. And most of them will get a five second delay in 45 seconds. So it's pretty quick for me to get them to do a delay and feel what it feels like. And then sometimes like no one else at the jam, it's me and a new player. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just do counter today. Like maybe the weather's bad and it's not worth trying to get a jam in. So I'm like, let me just give you some high Z's counter and hand it off and let's learn that. And it just doesn't happen. Days, weeks, months, <laughs> we try it over and over and over again and they can't get counter. So I do think there's an aspect of it. If like once you learn one spin, it kind of breaks your brain to try to learn the other and it takes a lot longer to overcome that. So yes, there's no synergy, not no, but there's, there's not a lot of synergy of learning both spins. So they're completely different. I get you there. The bike analogy I'm still struggling with. We'll come back to that. So <laughs> let me give, let me start giving you my rebuttals. So I think my number one point, and I think I'll start with the rebuttal to this point is this, this only only applies to top players, but there is diminishing returns to clock. So, and some of this is about emotions. So learning things is very satisfying. It makes you feel good to get better at things. It's kind of like talking about Dota earlier. What's fine about Dota is that I get better every 10 minutes. Whereas in freestyle, I probably get better every 10 months. So that faster learning curve and something new is really rewarding. The same applied for me when I first started really focusing on counter was that I, when everything feels new, your learning rate is really fast again. And it's very satisfying to be like, okay, like today I can't learn a new clock move, but I can learn 10 counter moves today because that's how far behind I am at counter. So just like general economic principles, diminishing returns, like the longer you do the same thing, the less value you get out of it. Any response to that? Yeah, the main one is the value of learning those 10 new counter moves, I think is higher for you than it is for the rest of the population. Say more. So because for me anyway, because I know people can't tell the difference that a move was counter, like it's basically I didn't even learn those 10 new moves. Like it mm -hmm. has no value because when I show it off, I don't get any credit. Okay. So why would I get credit for it? You get like personal, personal, like inward credit. You're like, you're <laughs> rewarding your, it's like, I did my chores today and it makes me feel good. Like there's very, there's like happiness there for sure. And I think that's why that's so basically your you're saying enjoyment. I'm so wrong my brain is so broken that it only, the only reward is that my broken brain makes me feel good when I learn counter. <laughs> I don't think it was broken. That's no, that's like the standard, like the only enjoyment you get is the same enjoyment you get out of doing chores. Okay. <laughs> Which is <laughs> for me, I don't I'm, like I okay. do go on. Yeah. So like when I'm doing mundane things at home, like when I'm done, I'm like, I feel good. Like you do your homework when you get home from school and you're done, you like feel good. You're like, I'm accomplished. But it's like, okay. I turn in that homework and I like, it doesn't count. Like that the only satisfaction I got was from completing it for myself. That's what learning this counter moves are. But I guess my response to that is that isn't every aspect of freestyle just about whatever personal enjoyment you drive from it. It's like, we, we don't make money. We don't get fame. You don't really get anything out of the sport except enjoyment. So, I mean, maybe the answer to the question is if you enjoy learning counter, you should. And if you don't, there's not a lot of reasons to do it. I still have some rebuttals to that, but like, given that there's no intrinsic purpose to what we do, then I think it's totally valid to say that if it's something that if like, if learning is one of our goals, then learning the other spin makes a lot of sense. But if it's not one of your goals, then you don't need to do it. Okay. So 
I think everyone learns differently at the beginning. Like I was very goal focused. So mm-hmm. every week uh, for the first two years, when I started, I would learn a new move during the week by myself and I would go out to the jam and show it off. Yeah. And that like showing it off and everyone being like, wow, that was cool. They learned this in a week. Like that's the reward. I need that for me, that external like reward is so valuable, but I don't get that counter. So what do you think you're, this is like going to get very personal, I feel like, but what do you think when you were initially learning freestyle, what was your big picture goals? Like, what did you want to do in the sport? Like it, I don't think I had big picture goals until the talked about the points run in 2013, which was already like five years in. Yeah. It was like, uh, it was like a meditative activity. Like the fun was the practice. And so I would just practice because it was fun and I would get the payoff at the end of the week. And like, it was like a feedback loop. When was the first time you thought like, I want to win a world championship or I want to be one of the top ranked players? Probably five years in 2013. So before that, it didn't, you didn't think much about it or it didn't occur to you or that wasn't your main goal. Nope. It was probably catching a double spinning barrel guys or something like that. That's so interesting. So I'm kind of embarrassed to even talk about it, but, and I'll, I'll give a shorter version of it. But before I was a freestyler, I was a musician. I was a very serious musician. I wanted to be the best possible musician I could be. And I totally burned out. So when I started freestyle, my very, very initial goal was, okay, let's not make this my whole life. Like I made music. I don't want to do something that I exhaust myself doing and completely burn out and practice too much and have too lofty of goals. I just want to do something that's totally for fun that I only play for fun. And if it's not fun, I'm not going to practice. Like that was how I went into this sport, but that unfortunately is not how my brain works. So it didn't take very long for me to start setting very lofty goals. And I think definitely within my first year, (coughs) I was thinking basically how do I become one of the best players ever? And I know that's like a very, narcissistic goal and I don't know if I assumed I would reach that goal and I also understood that it's a relatively small sport so it's easier to be one of the best freestylers than it is to be one of the best Dota players for instance but like that also is kind of why I let myself fall into that trap of like I want to be one of the best is I kind of was like okay well it's a little bit healthier to try to be one of the best freestylers than it is to be one of the best musicians like I'm not gonna die trying to do this and it also just turns out that freestyle stayed fun for me in a way that music didn't. But I also say I did have a very specific goal, which is at some point somebody told me that Fabio Sana won a world title within three years of playing. And that became my star. It's like, I want to win a world title within three years. And I believed I was going to do it. I did not care what the odds were. I don't think I fully appreciated how unlikely it was that that would happen. And it did happen. And it was like, it was like some bad self-help book. Like I truly just believed that it was going to happen and visualized it. And I don't believe in any of that nonsense, but like, that is what happened. Like Daniel and I talked about it. It was all we wanted to do. And it actually happened. And when I look back on it, it's like winning the lottery. I'm like 10,000 things had to go right for us to win because we were not the best players, not even close. Like, we were, I think we were, by the way, when we talked about seated, we were seated last in co-op, at least fifth, but probably last. And even after we played and even after everyone else played, I did not think, it didn't occur to me that we could really win. It was kind of just like, that was a goal we had, but it's not really what we're going to do. But anyways, I go on this long tirade to say that for better or worse, and I'm again, I'm like kind of embarrassed about it. I've always wanted to be one of the best freestylers. And part of that for me was learning both spins. And I think it's because that's a big part of the New York freestyle culture. And it was ingrained into me that if you want to be one of the best players, you have to play both spins. Like Lou Sumrall, one of the mottos he would say a lot is the meadow gets what the meadow wants, which is if someone's (laughs) going to throw you counter, you have to be ready to deal with that. And then I guess one other point I'll say on the like, what was driving me at the beginning. And it's so bad, but it's, it goes into our conversation before on another podcast about like letting every slight fuel you. 
is like every time I had a bad jam or every time like one of the grumpy New Yorkers like said something mean to me because I wasn't playing well, I was just like, one day I'm going to be better than all of you and you're going to be begging <laughs> to jam with me and like I'm going to get, I'm going to get you all back for like treating me so poorly. And of course they didn't treat me poorly. And, but like anytime they were like, Hey soldier, like this jam is not for you. Like you're not good enough yet. I was like one day, like I'm going to show these guys. <laughs> so like I definitely was fueled by rage and self-doubt like many other people, <laughs> but, but it was like, it was a good thing. Like I enjoyed the, I enjoyed the drive. It wasn't like music. I knew it wasn't going to be my career. I knew no one outside of this tiny community would ever know about it. So it was like a much healthier obsession than other things in my life. But yes, tied up in all of this and why I'm talking about it now is I've always been under the belief that I had to be great at both spins to be the best. And I'd say starting in 2013 and probably for five or six years, when I practiced, I practiced exclusively counter. I never, ever, ever did clock under the theory that when I jam, I get 95% clock every jam my entire life. So if I want to be equally good at counter, I have to only practice counter. That's the only way to keep up. And counter was more than twice as hard as clock. Like even definitely for the first four years, like there okay. was definitely a point Wait, where I have I felt, to interrupt you. Yeah, yeah go for it. <laughs> Cause you're already changing the subject. Okay. I agree that if you're going to be like, not even the best, but like the greatest of all time, you do need to learn both spins and all the angles. Like I concede that point, but that's kind of like you were talking before the Dota game about how you do all these like things that there's like all these mechanics that you do and you're like listing them all out. I'm like, those don't matter for the average player. Like what matters for the average player is like learning your basics and your basics can all exist in one spin. And that's like 95% of players live in that world. You're like in the pros don't have to follow the rules category. That's fair. I mean, that's where I might agree with you more than I want to. Cause I said, like I'm teaching the Duke players how to play clock, not counter, but definitely my more advanced players who again are still pretty much beginners. I'm already starting to teach them counter. So let me give you some of my more, my, my other arguments for why okay. you should learn counter. So, we talked earlier about asymmetry. Like most people are right-handed. That means when you play clock, there are some things that make more sense for you to do and for you to learn because you get to use your dominant hand to do them. That also means if you switch the spin to counter, a whole new move set is going to be available with your dominant hand that you wouldn't have thought of as a clock player. So it's not that when you learn counter, it's going to mirror your clock game although that's one of my goals, we can talk about that later, your counter game is going to look very different from your clock game because of that asymmetry in your right-handedness or your left-handedness thoughts. So like being able to turn over with your right hand. Well, like here's a great example. Counter. And like they're not moves that I love, but like when you're playing clock, you're doing a palm up, standard, backhand, for lack of a better word, clock brush. If you're playing counter, you're learning the overhand hyper bash. So like even your brushing technique is going to be totally different if you're doing clock or counter, if you're right-handed. Yeah, that makes sense. So like, it's almost like a subset. Like I actually do believe I want my counter game to mirror my clock game as much as I can. But for the average person, you're not going to have much overlap. Like your counter game is going to look different. I mean, same with depending on what hands you catch it with and how you set it you're probably going to be doing different catches counter than you do clock also. Yeah, I agree. My game is also shaped that way. Yeah. So like for instance, if you do a left-handed guidus and you're a clock player, you probably want to learn counter because the counter set makes a lot more sense for the lefty guidus because you want to be shooting it off to your right side, which again, sounds like counterintuitive, but equal and opposite reaction. <laughs> if you're setting it counter, it's easier to set it to your right and clock, we usually set it to our left for a righty guidance. Mm -hmm. So like stuff like that, you get a lot of value from learning counter. So, so I have you there. I got a point there. I feel like there's, okay. there's points here. No, I'm, I'm definitely realizing. <laughs> I have one follow-up question. Yeah, yeah, hit me, hit me, hit me. Okay. When you won in 2013, what, what was your clock versus counter spread? So you mean 2012, our first 2012. 
Oh, 2012. Yeah, that's it. Um, I would say I was still like 70, 30, 60, 40. Like I still had a pretty reasonable Connor game. I'd be curious. Maybe after this, I'll watch that routine. I haven't watched that in a long time. I bet you I do a couple counter moves. Um, but yeah, it wasn't until like 2013 or 2014 that my counter really caught up. So definitely in the first few years, it was more clock for sure. But I will say like one of my prides has been tricking people into believing I was a counter. The other thing I did <laughs> when I was learning counter is I was living in Europe then and I just told everyone I was counter. I just lied. I was like, I'm counter just to get as much as I could. And I think that that helped me. So there's probably, I used to like keep it a closely guarded secret and I took pride that <laughs> there were different groups who it's would It's like swear. a scarlet letter. You gotta like hide it. The people, hide your... There would be people who would <laughs> swear up and down that I was clock or counter, which I always thought was funny. I was like, all you have to do is go back and find a video of me in 2010 and you would see right <laughs> away that I was one versus the other. But yeah, sorry if I lied to you. I used to tell people I was counter, but it was for a good cause. Um, okay, here's my next point. Are you ready for it? Yep. And I'm realizing that many of my points are very pro player centered. So apologies. Body management. So if you okay. play only clock, you're going to be wearing down the same parts of your body over and over and over again. And if you play both spins, you're going to distribute that pain over more of your body. So the easiest example is if you're sitting there throwing yourself backhand clock self sets to practice all day long you're going to do a lot of damage to the right side of your body. But if you can mix in some left-handed backhand self-sets, you're going to distribute the pain a little more. So where I think about this most is when I go to a beach tournament or beach weekend and almost everyone's clock. By day two, my right arm is killing me. And I'm like, please, can I throw some lefty counter throws to alleviate the burden? Now, I know there are different throws you can do with different sides of your body that are all clock. I get that. But for the most part, being able to mirror the other spin can help you distribute the pain. Okay. So maybe we practice differently, but if I were to add 50 counter practice reps into my, I would still do the 50 clock reps before that and then do the 50 counter. So it's like, I can't sacrifice my primary spin for this secondary move. And like now I'm like starting to coach people mm -hmm. and I would also be like, don't sacrifice your fundamentals for non-fundamentals. And I don't, I think I can argue that one spin, like all your fundamentals should be learned in one spin first. And then everything else is non-fundamental at that point. Hmm. Well, so part of what you're saying sounds like is you should, if if anything, you should do the bare minimum counter to alleviate your body, but your whole focus is clock. Like you'll do a yeah. little counter to kind of like keep touching the disc and give your right side a break, for instance, but you're not focusing on counter at all otherwise. You know, it's more like if you're trying to avoid wear on your primary side, mm -hmm. you should figure out ways to make that wear not as, not okay. as, yeah. But, but you kind of remind me of another aspect of it, which is kind of a sub argument, which is I, do, I disagree. I don't do this now. Like originally it was okay. Here's everything I can do clock. Let's learn all those things counter. That makes a lot of sense. And now I usually just learn. I usually try to learn everything both ways, unless it's super wild that it's not worth learning both ways, but almost everything I learned both ways. And a lot of times I just force myself to start counter just to make sure I get it. But I do think the model for most people and definitely the beginning is here's all my clock stuff. Now, if I'm going to learn counter, I'm going to replicate it counter. And so here's my sub argument. I think a lot of the things that I do counter are technically a lot better than how I do them clock because I got to learn them fresh without any bad habits. So it's like, I learned something one way. And when you learn it the first time, sometimes bad habits creep in because you're just trying to get it right. And by the time you've learned it, you're like, oops, like, Unfortunately, my form isn't what I want it to be, but this is how I learned it. It's going to take me a really long time to break this bad form. Then when I start at counter, I say, okay, what did I learn from doing this clock? How can I do this better counter? So I think that's one extra little benefit of learning things. Okay. Counter. I agree with you because this happened with me as well. 
Like my spinning to the right, I learned second. And I can spin straighter. And I can spot both forward and backwards when I spin to the right. But I can only like spin... I can only spot forward when I spin to the left. Like it only works in that one situation. The yeah. right one is way more versatile. Yeah, I I think I've started to catch up a little bit clock, but for five years easily, my counter rolls were much better with much better form than my clock rolls. And it's because I learned them second. So there's definitely some value there. Okay, so I got, I feel like I get a point there. I'm not keeping track of these points, but I just, <laughs> I just like saying that. It's you got to call point. them out when you get them. <laughs> yeah. So someone at home is writing them down and, and assigning value to them. So my next argument, and this is one of my favorite things, teaching people how to play, you can't avoid counter. So one thing I love is I'll have <laughs> someone who's been playing like a year and a half and they're chilling, they're having a great time, they're hitting like double barrel guidance, they're just shredding. And then they ask me like, hey, like how do I turn it over? And I say, okay, let me show you. And I show them a basic turnover and I say, you try. And the first few times they don't even get close. And then at some point, they turn it most of the way over. And there's that moment where they realize that when they turn the disc over, it is no longer clock. And they're like, oh. And it's actually really funny because I have several people here who are obsessing over learning turnovers and they try turnovers like 10 times a day. And I'm always asking them, what are you going to do when you turn it over? You can't delay it counter yet. <laughs> like, why are you trying to learn a turnover that even if you're successful with the turnover, you can't delay it. And I think they underestimate how much of the turnover is the ability to delay counter because they're actually turning over just fine. And they think the turnover is the problem. Like, no, your turnover is great. The problem is that you can't delay it the other way. So at some point, you're going to have to learn enough of the other spin to do something with it. And what you don't want to do is what some people do, even really good players, is they know such a bare minimum of counter that when they turn it over or when they get the counter throw, they are left with nothing but pathetic moves to <laughs> keep it moving, finish it, whatever. So you don't want to be like that. You want to feel comfortable enough to do something with it. Thoughts? I think those, like, especially after the turnover, you like, let's say turnover clock to counter, you learn the counter claw. That's kind of a, almost everyone turns over into a counter mm -hmm. claw. I think that counter claw is like an extension of clock. Like that disc is upside down clock. It's not counter. I do. So we, we had, I think all, Matt can also back me up on this. No, I agree. So we had an all counter jam at beach weekend, if you remember. And at some point, Lori tried to throw upside down counter and you and me at the same time were like, no, no, you can't throw that. That's not counter. And she's like, what are you talking about? I'm throwing you counter. We're like, no, 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 no. Upside down counter is actually clock. And I, I, I think it sounds like we're kidding. I'm not kidding. Upside down counter is clock. Like, I don't care. It's in the same family. I, if, if you're upside down clock is counter and upside down counter is clock. I will fight tooth and nail about that <laughs> to a degree. But like, there's still a big distance between that and there's still a lot of value in knowing counter. So yes, almost all clock players, good clock players, can do the counter claw with their right hand and can set it into their scarecrow or whatever. But I still think it's so much more valuable when you can front roll it, back roll it, whatever. Just do anything other than I'm just going to claw it and set it because it opens up so many avenues. And turnover is not the only thing. Like if you want to do spin changes, you have to be comfortable going with the other spin. If you want to do certain kind of symmetric moves, which I know I'm like the only person who's obsessed with, you're going to have to do both spins to deal with that. So like I like, for instance, doing a clock front roll and then changing it into a counter front roll. And you have to spend a lot of time learning both spins to be able to do stuff like that. And I think, I think it's something that's really cool, but not a lot of people value it. Any other thoughts yeah. on that? I was, you're reminding me like we need more stats and I was like, I wish stats were automatic. Like if the disc made a sound or a different sound when it was clock or counter, that would be a mate. Like, I wish it was more obvious that it was different. Hmm. And when you did the move counter, it made, I don't know, a different ding sound when you caught it. Yeah, that would be cool. I get that. It's like a video game kind of thing. But I do think there's something a little different about it. And let me give you an example. That's one of my favorite stories to tell. 
So I was at a tournament, I can't remember which one it was, and Andrea Rimatori was playing. And Andrea Rimatori is left-handed and he plays counter. So for all purposes, he might as well be doing clock right-handed, right? He is a lefty and he is playing counter. So the things that are natural to him counter are the same things that would be natural to a clock player right-handed. And at some point in the routine, he has that kind of like steep downward angle in the front of his body. And he does something that clock players around the world have done a hundred million times, which is he brushes the heck out of it. Just leans back, cocks the gun and just bam, smashes into the disc lefty and puts a ton of spin on the disc. And the crowd goes wild, absolutely loses their mind. I'm sure he got three tins on his dip sheet from doing that. <laughs> and even in the moment, I was like, that was so incredible. But here's the thing. If Pavel Bernanek did the exact same thing clock, it would be an execution error, <laughs> let alone like a jaw-dropping wow moment. So there is something about counter is used less often and is more unusual. And you get kind of like counterpoints because people aren't used to seeing it done that way. And it like triggers something in your brain that makes it seem harder than it really is. I like the idea of counterpoints. If that was consistent, then it would change my view. Okay, so let's talk about it in the terms of competition then. So I'm arguing that to some degree, there's value in getting counter because people view it as harder, even if it really isn't. But there's another aspect, which is that variety is one of the components that's scored in tournaments and it is something that i hear people mention a lot at the judging table like oh that routine was all clock or that routine was all counter so it seems like people care whether it's all just one spin but i have a feeling your argument is going to be that the extra value you get for doing both spins isn't worth the risk am i right i think it's even more broad than that it's like the risk is not that you're going to drop it the risk is you're not going to get credit I see. Like they literally won't realize that yep. you are playing counter, so you won't get points for it. Do you think that's true? I tend to agree with you that everyone's bad at judging, myself included. Like we should have a whole conversation about that. Everyone's bad at judging. If you're going around saying, I'm good at judging, everyone else is bad, we need more judging education, I disagree with you. Everyone's bad at it. You just think you're right, but you're probably not. So I get it. Like we're all pretty bad at this, even though we pretend like we know what we're talking about. But I have to believe, and maybe this is the wine test that we should talk about. Like, I believe that when I'm judging, I'm paying attention and know when it's clock or counter. But you're saying that maybe I don't. I think you do. So if you're judging, I mean, if you're like all nine judges, it would be very different. But maybe I'll ask this. Do you think judges that would say they care about it don't notice it like someone who would be like, I care whether it's clock or counter and I care about that variety, but they're still missing it because they're not paying attention. No, I think it does correlate. So the people who are more interested in both spins do see it more. So that's okay. So this is kind of interesting because one thing that I get a particular amount of joy from as a player is the few people who this is like, sounds so narcissistic with a few people who give me credit for the things that I care about that no one else can notice. And it's definitely, this is like a big, like top player problem of like, you're doing stuff that not a lot of people notice or appreciate, but when someone does, it's like the best feeling in the world. And I don't even think it's correlated that much to skill. It's just some people see the things that I care about and notice them in a way that other people don't. It's like Graf and Rob are the best examples that come to mind. Every time I do something like Graf's the one who comes up to me after worlds this year and it's like, I saw you do both spins chair. Like I noticed that you did it the other side or like the first time I did spun the other way for a double in worlds was in 2016 and graph like came up to me right away. It was like, I, you don't usually spin on that side. And Rob too will be like, I've never seen you do that one with your left hand under that. Like he will find like the tiniest thing that you did different that made it interesting. And you're the weirdest example because you'll notice, but you'll be like, I don't really care about it, but I saw that you did, like, whatever. <laughs> but there, I do get this idea that there are some people who really care about these things and really notice the breadth and variety, but most people don't. And I'm not even saying that's a bad thing. Like, why should you care that I'm spinning on my weak side? 
Like there's a good argument that you shouldn't, but I do and some people do, and maybe that matters. I think that's, that's kind of like the root of the problem for me is if people cared, I would care. Well, let me, okay, here's this philosophical thing that I think about sometimes, okay. and I'm sure someone's written about this thoughtfully, and I'm trying to think of the best way to explain it. But I think sometimes there's a debate about something and one side cares and the other side doesn't. It's not that they don't like it, they just don't care. And when something like that happens, I default to the side that cares. So let me think of an example. So like, let's say you're at the park and you have to decide whether to play music or not. And half the people at the park want it to be quiet. And then the other half of people don't care whether you play music. To me, the default rule in that situation should be you can't play music because half the people really don't want you to and the other half are indifferent. So the net value is probably just a utilitarian theory. The net value of not playing music is higher than the net value of allowing music. So like the way I see it is some people really care about playing both spins, being BSAA, doing all these nuanced things, and a bunch of people don't care. But it doesn't hurt me with the people who don't care that I play both spins, but it does help me among the small group. So like that's kind of the tiebreaker. What do you think of that? I think you're in a different, you're in the pro category. So for the pros, they can, they have to compete in that lane. Like they have like, the pros have more, more expectations and like they have to like compete at a higher level because they're pros. And because you're in that lane, you have to, you have to care. So basically we've learned that you're an every man among the people helping out the beginners and I'm just living in my ivory tower, smoking the cigar and eating <laughs> caviar, not understanding the plight of the little guy. So that's fair. I, I do think I, I get that aspect, but I guess I have a couple more though. Like, I mean, what about, we've talked a little bit about questions and answers in the sense of like questions are posed when you're freestyling and the best players have the most answers. I guess this is the best player thing, but doesn't having both spins available mean you have, more answers like you can deal with more because and it's not just clock or counter but if you're playing counter you're used to catching on this particular side and maybe you get the set that way and you're like oh i'm so glad i can do this because i've been practicing this counter i think the first thing is we'll talk about this later but you only need so many moves to be in the a jam and so a lot of that is negated by just having your four fundamentals yeah but i do agree that if you do have both spins available your answers are gonna be way more elegant than the player that doesn't that's having to use the fundamentals only yeah it's like actually, you use yeah no go ahead you use like this really great analogy where like someone's writing a story and like the moves they pick in their freestyle combo is like the words in their story and like some people use like simple moves and some people use really fancy moves and like your vocabulary is much greater than mine because you have both spins available so you're always using like the fancy move and i have to use like five simple words to describe what i want of course though if you take that analogy further you would say that you can tell a better story with simple move, simple words than with complicated words but i guess like the way i would think it is that or the way i would put it is if you're playing just clock you have some very odd glaring lack of vocabulary words you're just like <laughs> i'm trying to describe pizza but i somehow lack the word for this so or like or like you're missing a conjunction like you only have and and or but you don't have but it's something like that's kind of how i'm thinking about it or like i don't know maybe it's punctuation you just don't have semicolons it's like yeah you don't need semicolons or colons but every now and then it would be really nice to have a semicolon available so i don't know it's funny to think about freestyle's language i definitely default a lot to that because it's my job is basically writing so i think about freestyle a lot in those terms but i i like feeling like i have answers because one of my least favorite things when i was not as adept at bow spins is when maybe you want to really do some move or you want to end with a big combo and someone does you counter and just your heart falls <laughs> and you're like oh well i guess i'll have to wait for the next throw to do whatever i wanted to do because it's counter it's nice to finally be at a place where it's like, oh, I got counter. Like, I'm excited. I'm definitely more excited when I get counter than if I do clock. And that's not because I'm better at counter. It's more just I don't get it as much. It's still, like, very exciting. And there's a lot more things I want to try because I just deal with counter less. But 
there's definitely a lot of value in that. And then I guess one last thing that we haven't talked about yet is it's nice to be able to talk to everybody. It's kind of like learning another language. Now I've tried to learn lots of other languages and I haven't really succeeded at that, but obviously people like learning new languages and being able to speak to people. So when I see the counter jam, I'm happy that I can go in that jam. I'm happy that I have multiple world titles with someone who's primarily counter. Like I, I like that I can pick a partner who's counter and not feel like I'm giving up anything by doing that. It's not like, oh, well, I'm not going to be able to do all these things because they're counter. It's, oh, this is exciting. I get to do all the things I normally do counter. In fact, like when I played with Zofia, I just took a bunch of old clock co-ops and just did them counter. And it's like, well, this is just <laughs> reverse everything. It's not going to bother me and it'll be more comfortable with her. And great, here we go. Yeah, I agree that in the current situation, it does help to like know both. Like I feel restricted. Like I'm not going to bust the counter jam because... I'll bring that jam down. Like I only have my few moves and they're not as like fast as my clock game. Yeah. But it's like, we get to influence what happens in the future and like the freestyler of tomorrow or the one that learns today, like they, there should be a bias towards one, one spin. I might be okay with that. I might be okay with okay. saying that if you're learning, you should start clock because it's going to, well, okay, well, let me throw another wrench at you. <laughs> okay. And I actually almost brought this up when we were looking at the number one players in the world. Is there a, an advantage to being primarily counter? And here's my argument for why. If you are primarily counter, you will not be able to avoid becoming a great clock player. But if you are primarily clock, you are going to have to go well out of your way to get good at counter because you're just not going to get it so i think most counter players are bsaa players whereas only a small percentage of clock players are bsaa players so there's something about if if as you've acknowledged being in the conversation for the greatest of all time requires you to learn both spins so if your goal is to be one of the best players of best players ever learn counter and then when you're first forced to learn clock you will be a true bsaa player okay I think there's like, I think the term is survival biased, where all the counter players that couldn't adjust because they picked the wrong spin by accident just left. And if they were clock players, they could have integrated without any extra work. That is a great point. And survivorship bias is my personal favorite bias. It's the one that I think about the most. And keeping in keeping in my track record of butchering concepts outside of my subject matter expertise. My understanding of survivorship bias is we are like the way it comes up the most is basically like the successful entrepreneur being like, let me tell you how I started my billion dollar company. First, follow your dreams. Second, drop out of your Ivy League school. It's like for 99% of people who did that, it didn't work out. But you're the one who is successful and you're talking about it and we're looking to you. I mean, an even better example would be like, I won the lottery. Let me tell you how to be successful. Go, <laughs> go to the convenience store and buy a lottery ticket. So what you're saying is, most people who start counter are dropping out because they show up to the jam and they're like, oh my God, I can't even play with these people. I'm going home. So they never come back. But if you are strong enough to keep playing and compete hard and survive in a clock driven world, you are more likely, like the people who survive that are better. Because the, the yep. thing I was thinking about when we were drafting number one players is, is this a disproportionate number of counter players? And I'm not sure. It actually looks pretty close. Like, I would assume that, what do you think, 10% of people are counter, 5%? Oh, I see what you mean. I think it is a disproportionate. Yeah, they overperform. So maybe, like, I'm going to guess that, what is it? Do you think 5% or 10% of the population is primarily counter? I'll 10%. So if it's 10%, I think it's, I mean, it's a little bit disproportionate. So we had 16 number one players. Larry's counter fabio's counter and i mean like primarily counter and it's i i think i'm wrong i think bob coleman might be counter i'm not <laughs> sure but either it's 20 percent and it's kind of noise like you know or it's like it's it's in between what you would expect so it's like it's not that helpful whether it's disproportionate or proportionate i don't know but i just feel like in my experience 
I perceive a lot of counter players as better because they can do both spins really well. Like Daniel is a counter player. He started counter mm -hmm. and you would never know that. I mean, Daniel's actually, Daniel, I think is a, and Daniel can come in and crack me on all this, but I think Daniel's an even smarter version than your version in terms of strategy in the sense that like Daniel has like no overlap between his clock game and his counter game. It's like there is, <laughs> it's just like my clock game is perfectly distinguished in every way. Like every gap in my clock game is filled by my counter game. It's like so efficient. It's like efficient beyond belief. It's like you want to see a Tom Leitner level brush run. I will give that to you clock all day long. Like I think Dan is one of the best brushers ever. But then if you want to do like double spinning pulls, like I'm doing a counter baby. Like he he's like very, I don't think it's necessarily intentional, but he's really picked his battles. He's like, I'm not going to waste my time learning the same move. Both spins. I'm sure he can, but like, he, he definitely has a maximum synergy yin and yang with his clock encounter. But, and maybe, I don't know, but I, I always think that like Daniel is seamlessly BSAA and I'm like in the gym at 5 a.m. every day just desperately trying to keep my <laughs> BSAA. But I, I, think I think I care about it yeah. more than anybody. So I see. The, yeah, you use the word efficient. I think that's really a good way because I don't think Daniel just learned it intuitively, but you had, you're like, you wanted the redundancy, right? Yeah. And to get that redundancy, it costs something. And you paid like twice or three times as much as Daniel did. Yeah. No, I get that. Which it's kind I of don't like... think most people will pay that. Like that cost, you have to, when you're learning, you should like figure out your cost. I mean, this is like life in general. You should like figure out the cost before you start. That way yeah. you don't get stuck halfway. Like I built two identical bedrooms right? it's like it's like they're right next to each other they have the same furniture one's on the right side one's on the left side daniel's like no no no. i've got my bedroom i've got my office i don't need two bedrooms like he is a little bit more efficient about that but okay so now you bring me though to competition because that's another side of efficiency so here i will acknowledge this i've mentioned the counterpoints i do think that's valid but i'm at a point that is a, a big bummer as a competitor which is that I don't think there's anything I can learn that has more value in competition than what I already know. And that's true also with clocker counter. So as soon as I can hit eight triples clock, I don't need eight triples counter. Like I can max out the three minutes doing triples one spin. So it's like a total waste to have all these other ones. But again, competition isn't really my goal, but I think about this a lot and I'll diverge from BSAA for a second. But it's a, such a bummer learning things and being like, well, I could do this at Worlds or I could do a double spinning barrel guidance. And the, the latter is going to be much easier for me and it's going to get a higher score than whatever new funky thing I'm working on. But that's kind of like what we talk about later, the losing streak. Like I have started making it my goal. Of like I don't care that this I'm worse at this than something that has more value. I'm going to do it anyways. Like I'm living in inefficiency now, or at least I'm trying to live more inefficiently to be like, I'm going for these things that I don't need to go for because I'm bored of doing the stuff I already know how to do. That's like really growth mindset. That's the value in it, I think. Yeah, you, I mean, right? I still will acknowledge like it's hard when like things go wrong and you're just trying to adjust in the moment. Like your brain reverts back and, and in a lot of bad ways too. Like, like I've talked about how my form gets a little bit worse when I'm improvising and under pressure. Like everything goes back. So like, don't be surprised if I still hit a bunch of comfort zone moves in a tournament but it's not i'm planning on doing something different like if you looked at what i'm planning to do at worlds it's a bunch of stuff that i'm not that comfortable with and there's a reason i played with mostly counter players the last few years like i want to be pushing myself to do things different but it's not as efficient i mean i'm definitely there's better options for me than to do counter double spins going the opposite way like but one day, I'm like, maybe even this year, I'm going to do a double barrel guidance, everything the opposite. Probably a double Fleming guidance first, but whatever. It's on my list. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Let me look at my... Even though you gave me ample time to prepare for this, I didn't start writing notes until right as we started. So we talked about competition. We talked about having answers. We talked about body management. We talked about diminishing returns. So I guess if, unless you have any other arguments, I feel like we should summarize what we've 
what we've agreed upon and what we've disagreed upon. Yeah, we could do the summary. I thought we should do one forward-looking, like, if you're a new player listening to this, what should you do type of Well, thing. that's almost kind of what I was thinking of as the summary. So, like, what's your okay, okay. takeaway for new players? Okay, we can do, so we're doing takeaway now. Yeah. Okay, so my takeaway, I think James also agrees with me, is if you're just starting in your first couple, whatever, days, weeks, or months, you should pick clock. And you should learn all your moves, all your fundamentals clock, because what you want is success and success is going to be fun. And like, you need that fun because freestyle is so hard to learn. And so you should just focus on that one spin and you'll be able to like other people are going to be doing the same thing you're going to be doing. And you'll be able to talk to each other in the long run. I think that's great. I think it's a good argument. I think my takeaway is. Number one, this is true no matter what we're talking about, you should learn what's fun for you. Like Ryan said, this is such a hard sport that if you're interested in learning something, do it. I'm not going to stop you. If your first move is a one-handed handstand invert delay because that's what you love, go for that. I'm not going to stop you. But with that said, at some point, you should decide what your goals are. What kind of freestyler do you want to be? Do you want to be one of the best freestylers ever? And if the answer to that question is yes, then at some point you need to think about learning both spins, any angle, because the truly great players can do both and not just handle it. If you just want to be a good jammer, good competitor, it's enough to build a handle counter. But if you want to be the best, I still think you have to learn both spins because the meadow gets what the meadow wants. Lose some roll nice okay i can't wait to hear what we missed we're definitely someone's gonna have some ferocious yeah argument. we didn't really talk about any angle at all but that's like a whole I, we didn't I have think, time but it kind of like it fits within everything like all the reasons you would care about the non-dominant spin is why you would care about other angles but there's definitely like a flat versus vertical conversation that we should have at some point there's also i want to have a whole episode on why did technical become a bad word and what does technical even mean? Because I think that's just okay. so overused <laughs> and people have no idea what they're talking about. It's basically just like when people want to low-key diss somebody, they're like, oh, he's a very technical player. It drives me crazy. But that's another conversation. <laughs> but I, I think we did good. I, I think it's maybe like a little bit too esoteric a topic for some people, but it is kind of a new player topic, so I'm glad we covered it. And... I'm, I actually would like to know more what other people think about it because I think you're right that I've kind of grown up in this bubble where people really care about BSAA and I think elsewhere people don't even think about it. It's like, why would I even care about being able to do everything? It's I think some of it too is I don't know why other people play or like what their goals are. Like intellectually, it makes a ton of sense to me that a lot of people are just like, I am this good at freestyle. This is how good I want to be and I'm happy with it and I'm just here to have fun. But to me, I can't have fun unless I'm doing new things. And I think that's part of why freestyle gets harder and harder for me because it's harder and harder to learn new things and get good at new things. And to me, that's where the fun is. I want to go out every day and try to hit new things. And I think I'm always experimenting. I, I sometimes I think like my Duke players think I'm really bad because I'm like still dropping it all the time. It's like, well, I've never done this before. Like I'm trying to do the thing <laughs> that I don't know how to do especially when everyone's so bad. It's like, well, I'm not exactly going to have a crazy GM here today. So I might as well be trying this new throw or this new thing to kind of get better at it. But we're going to have a whole podcast on like what it takes to be the best. Yeah. Okay. We should. Yeah. I think I feel like we have a lot of wisdom to impart. There's a lot of things I would do differently if I could go back. But and I'm excited to see like the next generation of best players and like what they're going to be able to do. Because like, what is it like? to become obsolete. Cause I think that's going to happen to us at some point to be like, look at what's going on and be like, wow, these players are so much better than me. I can't, I don't even know what they're doing. I needed I that to happen two years ago. I know. I wish it had happened <laughs> earlier too. We could be on the beach right now, retired, but I think it's all about guides, Ryan. I think it's just, <laughs> everything's going <laughs> to be guide. guides in the future. <laughs> they're going to be like, wow, like you guys had to use the inside rim. That's so pathetic. <laughs> everything's it's all about the outside rim that's what we're doing now <laughs> they don't even delay it in the set they like use the rim on the top 
Yeah, that's that's the new when you say rim delay, that's what they mean. Yes, exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> it's all the ridge delay. Ridge they're, delay. That's <laughs> they're gonna be like, wow, you don't hoop before every catch. It's like you don't. It's a double double spinning, double hooping barrel guidance. That's what it's really <laughs> yeah. about. I don't know. I like to imagine the best freestyle. Okay, Ryan. Well, I think that's that's it for today, right? Anything else? Uh, nope. I think we're done. Yeah, you can okay. find us. Yeah, T- tell email us where, us. Ryan. Yeah, clock or counter at gmail.com. <laughs> email us your questions or yeah, listener questions. Send in your listener questions. Awesome. And like, rate, subscribe, whatever the things you do are. Leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Not that anyone outside the freestyle community will ever listen to this, but make sure people out there know this is happening. We we want to build some momentum. We want to have some players on and we want to have something that freestylers can look forward to about what we do all the time. So thanks for listening.